Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars about game design and publishing. These panels have been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers at Metatopia 2023. Episode 365, Narrative Voice in Games, presented by Jay Dragon and Amanda Valentine. <sighs> Hello. Uh, what I wanted to talk to you about today is, um, in brief, that there is a particular tool and a particular approach to thinking about RPGs that I have found is consistently a very practical tool in a designer's arsenal when they have access to it. And I have seen help many designers unlock and process their games. And I also think it is not common knowledge or it is not spoken about as a tool. So. In this roundtable, I'm interested in talking about it practically and inviting other people to, because I hate just being the one at the front of the room who's explaining everything. So my hope is to talk about this practically, work with everyone through it, get other people's thoughts as we go through it, as we think about how the game text that you are creating as a designer is a work of narrative, is a work of fiction and a, a storytelling object that contains a, per a perspective, a narrator, and a teacher. Before I go further, I'm gonna grab a glass of water very quickly because uh, having some short, yes please, thank you so much. I'm having some shortness of breath, thank you. <laughs> I'm like, whew, my lungs, that, that's new. It is very dry. Um, so I think Abby put me on this panel. Not that we've had a chance to discuss Wonderful. this. We haven't. I'm so sorry. I didn't realize that she had. I didn't get told. My bad. <laughs> um, showed up on my schedule. So. Oh my goodness. Um, well. Hi. Hello. It's a pleasure to meet you. I'm Jay. Hi, Jay. I'm Amanda. Um, I am an RPG editor uh, for lots of different things for about 20 years now. Um, so yeah, narrative voice is kind of the thing that I have to oversee. Yeah. So, um, as you clearly have a thing, I will just be supportive and. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I'm so sorry if I had realized that I would have loved to have talked to you. I'm so sorry, that's mine. <laughs> uh, also, hello everyone. I'm Jay Dragon. Uh, I'm the editorial director of Possum Creek Games, the author of Wander Home and uh, Yozeba's Bed and Breakfast, among others. Uh, I am a uh, SFFWA Nebula finalist. Uh, and my work has been like explicitly lauded uh, for its use of prose as an RPG object. So it's kind of my background there. Um, I think you're much more on the narrative side, or sorry, I'm much more on the editorial side, whereas I tend to be coming at it as a writer. Um, I feel like I would love your thoughts on like editing for voice and okay. that kind of, because like I know a lot of like writing for voice, mm -hmm. and I'd be interested in your perspective. Yeah, so a lot of what I've done is you get work from a bunch of freelancers, and then you have to make it look like it's all one book. Mm, yes, so absolutely. That's where a lot of my experience has come in. Mm -hmm. That makes total sense. Absolutely. I think that one of the big things in RPGs is that the notion of a cohesive voice is frequently hidden. Right? There is a particular voice that is the RPG rules voice, that we treat like a like an objective kind of like, oh, when a thing is written like this, it has no voice at all, right? Like, uh, the Midwestern accent. Yes, of course, with the, yes, Gygax's own, in own words, you know, like, you get plus, you know, like, uh, you wield a sword of, of stabbing, plus 2d6, you know, minus three, uh, it deals five piercing damage, you know, there are 3d6 goblins of a wily temperament, you know? Um, and what people frequently miss out on is that this particular voice and style 
isn't just like a thing that's been delivered on high. It has a history. It is, in fact, an anthropological pro like framework. It is frequently like, it is in the second person. It is authoritative. The way, the observations it makes about things is attempting an anthropological voice. Um, it is kind of some weird combination between an instruction manual and uh, like a sociology textbook. And people love to put this in their games and it's always very grating to me when that is not the perspective that they're trying to adopt in the world. If you're writing a game about gutter punks struggling to make it in the big city, why on earth are you using a tone that was developed by, like, <laughs> a, uh, you know, like a, a bunch of Midwestern old guys to sound like scientists about their goblins? Um, I, I think of it as uh, fictional nonfiction. Yes, absolutely. It's trying to sound objective, and specifically objective in a white Western framework, right? Like, it is specifically trying to be, like, which is why I think frequently, like, Orientalism is such a, a prominent thing in how a lot of, like, traditional stories are structured, because it invites uh, the Orientalist viewpoint. So, like, as a game designer, if you want to have your game have a different voice, what does that mean, right? What does it mean to think of your game text not as a... Um, you're not thinking of it as just like, okay, I'm going to follow the structure that has been given on high, but I am trying to articulate a perspective and a position. Because here's the thing. There is always someone teaching your game. Your game is not a thing that is just being beamed into their heads. There is a teacher, the book is a teacher. It is one kind of teacher. The GM is a teacher, right? The, um, the, the podcast they're listening to where they're playing your game is a teacher. And your book as a teacher is gonna take on a pedagogical style. It is teaching them. And so how is it using its voice to do that? Who is the teacher? Is the teacher literally you? Maybe. There are many games where that's the case. There are many games where you open up the book and like Apocalypse World, you crack it open. And in a lot of ways, it's Vincent Baker telling you how to play the game, right? It's, you know, there are games you open up and you can hear the game designer being like, and this, and this, and this. And it's like, cool, interesting. That's also not how many games should be, right? That is a particular mode. And so, you want to think of the narrator of your game, the, the teacher of the text, as a, as a being, right, who has a voice. In the same way that any fiction novel or any nonfiction novel has a narrative voice, so does your game. And who that is can dramatically change the tone and presentation and the philosophy of your game, right? If you have a game about a group of thieves who are sneaking around and stealing things in a fantasy world. Your narrator might be a fellow thief who's like, you know, like being like, hey, you've heard the tale of the wise guys of Algernon. Or it might be like a cop being like, these damn bastards running around, you know, here's their deal, right? It might be a noble, it might be someone they've stolen from. Those are all narrative viewpoints that dramatically alter how you teach the game to others, right? Because the way it is informing how your characters are seen within the world. Or the narrator might be someone from outside of the world. The narrator could be a storyteller who is telling a story about them. The narrator could be literally you. The narrator could be like an IKEA instruction manual, right? Those are all choices you can make. And the critical thing is that they are they are decisions that are changing the pedagogy and the approach you're making to information flow and the approach you're making to prose. Does everyone understand pedagogy? Oh, please, that's such a good question. Okay. Hell yeah, yeah. Pedagogy is the, the philosophy of how you teach, right? So um, if, you know, maybe talk about, maybe you can talk about it better than I can. <laughs> I don't know, sorry, I don't put you on the spot. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's, it's a perspective on how people learn and how you best 
give them the, the tools and the information they need in order to get it. Um, mm -hmm. Usually, uh, education is inherently biased in one way or another, um, and not addressing that bias. Now my branch is going up. No, yeah. I'm not going to get on my education soapbox. I refuse right now. You are you sure? Are you sure? You, you can. I'll let you. I would love to have you on your education <laughs> soapbox. Because I think it is relevant to game design also. I think the game design also has a bias. As a game designer, you are operating a perspective. You're not just delivering a rules out of nothing. You're, yeah. you're, you're teaching it as, you know, like you're taking an approach to teaching it. And you have a bias. Mm-hmm. Um, and you need to be aware of what that bias is. And that does, a bias isn't bad. It's inherent to being human. Um, but you need to know that that's where you're coming from. And if you want something beyond that bias, you need to have other people coming into it and so on. Um, mm -hmm. Like One of the things with pedagogy in education is moving away from the standardized test, which was inherently classist and racist. And you know, when everybody's supposed to be teaching to succeed in this kind of test that was made for these specific people, of course a bunch of people look like they don't know, they aren't smart enough and so on. Um, so yeah, that's pedagogy. Yeah. And I think that the, the flip side of that in game design is the, the way in which your text teaches itself, right? The way in which people teach your text, it can be heavily informed by your own uh, perspectives and philosophy. The original structure of Dungeons and Dragons follows a model that very closely aligns with the particular way in which Christian uh, churches communicate information, right? One person engages with the text, internalizes it, and then explains it to a group of people. Sometimes they don't even explain it to a group of people, right? Sometimes they just internalize it, sit down with others, and then it is just engage with it, and you'll find out if you're doing it wrong. Um, these are all Christian modes of engaging with a text, right? Um, there are other modes. There are many of my, a lot of my Jewish friends work with RPGs as a communal exercise, right? Or there is the, the kind of story game approach where you have a group of people sit down and you pass the book around and you each read a chunk of it and you're all kind of thinking about it together and you're treating the text as a collaborative entity, right? There are other approaches beyond that. But the notion of even how does someone pick up your book and think about it is something that's going to come from the biases of your history, right? And so in turn, the narrative of that, the narrative voice, right, will always contain a perspective. You can never teach the rules as an unformed, cloudless, objective system. You are always putting a spin on it. And also, it makes your game better when there's a cool narrator, right? Like when there's a when there's an actual perspective there. And you have to be careful that the narrator doesn't cloud the teaching, right? You don't want a narrator, a narrator who's bad at teaching the game, who like gets lost in their own, you know, accent or whatever. <laughs> but have, oh god, I am sure. <laughs> um, but having someone where having a sense of like who is writing this is really valuable, especially in the context of what a lot of RPG designers talk about as one of the hardest parts of writing the game, which is actually explaining the damn rules at the start. Right? Playbooks are easy. You know, <laughs> classes are easy. All that stuff is is oftentimes the easiest part. The hard part is explaining, like, oh, we're doing a conversation, and we're, you know, 2D6 plus stat, you know, those sorts of things at the beginning tend to be the hardest for a lot of people. And those are the hardest because when you're trying to write them without a strong narrative voice, they're really boring, and you know that. But if you imagine, and this is the thing that I am, like, why I'm, I'm doing this, this thing being, like, I want people to be thinking about this more, is that I think that... The, the simple tool of when you want to write your rules of your RPG and you're stuck and you can't think about them well and so you make up a guy to explain them instead of you that little activity is in my experience one of the easiest ways to get over that hurdle and clarify your thoughts on that section of the rules and like that is my like take this little concept and try it out in your own work. It's just make up a guy to explain it for you. And that is, has been very, I think, that is like, that's why I'm doing this. That's like, that's the, that's the, that's the crystallization of it. And I think that it, it's, it helps you think of your game ultimately as a work of art, right? That there is, as a, as a, as a work, like the, the text itself is a work of art independent from the games people end up playing with it. 
And part of that is that it should be enjoyable to read. Part of it being enjoyable to read is that the narrator is taking on a perspective and is being open about its biases and positioning itself. Um, do you think you want to add to that thought? Because that's kind of a big. That's kind of my. That's kind of my thesis statement. Plop. <laughs> I'm gonna add a twist on that, which is that you also need to know who your audience is. Yeah. And your audience is not you. Um, your audience does not share exactly the same bias as you do. Mm-hmm. And things that are perfectly clear to you are not going to be clear to them. Mm-hmm. Um, corollary to the creating somebody else to ex- to explain it is to it's the rubber duck thing where you mm-hmm. sit your rubber duck here and then you explain it to the rubber duck. Mm-hmm. And that that creates sort of an audience for you to uh, engage with and think of things that you need to express. Um, and. W- Another thing is that uh, like I've, I've had the most amazing experience of working closely with the person who laid out uh, the Cortex Prime Game Handbook. Uh, they had never done game handbooks before, and so brought a very different perspective to this. And because of how they learned, they brought a very visual aspect to it that I've never been able to do because I'm very word-oriented in how mm-hmm. I do things. and. Uh, Words are not the only language. Mm-hmm. The look of it, the uh, the layout, the the diagrams, the examples, all of those are part of how you are communicating what you're saying and reaching your audience, which are mm-hmm. connected but different things. My business partner, uh, Grubby, is a uh, class. Is a, is she's a, she does the book layout for mm-hmm. Possum Creek, uh, and she is uninterested in RPGs. She plays one game of dialect a year, maybe. Uh, and she is entirely interested in books as visual objects. Mm-hmm. And so for her, it's like, oh, the game, like, you know, the, the, the she's not interested in the expectations and standards of what games are supposed to look like, right? She's still, she's sticking to the principles, right, of information hierarchy and, like, preserving kind of, like, stuff that is important and true across all books. But for her, it's about, you know, she's making a good book. A good mm-hmm. game book is not, like, the, the, the social notion of what that's supposed to be is not for her. Um, and that means that Possum Week tends to be very visual, but also the visualness is very important because it reinforces the narrative voice, right? That art, art is not a stage that is necessary for everyone. You can make a good game without good art. But good art can, a good, like, your game ultimately should be a holistic object. Every single part of your game is feeding into, like every single part of your game book is feeding into the ultimate thing that is creating this experience, right? And so the text of the game and the art of the game and the layout of the game and the narrative voice and all these components matter because they feed into the shared thing. And you can choose to be like, I don't have the budget for this, or I, don't have the, I don't have the time for that, and that's all good and great, and you should make those choices because we're not, you know, creating perfect little art objects. We are human beings trying to, you know, make cool things. But when you think about those things, what is the function of art in RPGs? The art explains the theme better than the words can, right? I feel like that's a, yeah. And if art's beyond your budget, presentation at least. Yes, like, yeah. You hear art, you tend to think like, you know, the beautiful pictures and all that kind of stuff. But just the type font, how much white space there is on the page, um, all of those things matter tremendously. Yeah. Also, Um, truly, even at that, a thing that I do oftentimes is I've learned the basics of Google Docs information hierarchy with like header one, header two, header three. I just lay my thing out and I make it look decent in Google Docs styles and it is enjoyable to read. And it has, that's the, you know, it has done, and like I've picked a font that is evocative of the thing I'm trying to say. And there we go, we're, we're off to the races, right? Even if we don't have any art yet, it is still a compelling object. And at the crux of it, like when it comes to your writing, the thing you have control over, at least among other things, is that narrative voice. I'm, I wanna invite the, the group now, if you have examples of narrative voice in RPGs that has stood out to you. Instances that are like, that, that, have, that have sparked your attention. Yeah. Uh, the Burning Wheel book does an interesting job because mm-hmm. you have 
the text itself, and then you have three different types of commentary happening. Oh. And the commentary is marked by icons that represent who's doing it. There's Luke, Luke Crane voice, the Tor voice, mm -hmm. and then I think like an angry goblin voice. Mm -hmm. And it's commenting on the text around that it's near. That is really interesting. It's, I don't actually like it. <laughs> when I describe it in this context, it feels really good. How does it fail for you? Um, it's too excited about itself in a way that doesn't add too much. Yeah. I'm a big Luke Crane fan, but is this being recorded? Yes, yeah. yes it is. I'm a big Luke Crane fan, um, <laughs> but there's like a personality he exudes that's um, abrasive. Yeah. So there's like things like, why do you even have to say that? Yeah. I think also the major flaw of narrative voice, like the big like watch out is the self-indulgence because it is an invitation to be self-indulgent is to be like, I'm going to give my thing a special little voice that makes me happy. Uh, and it's very easy to be like, I'm going to put so much into that that people lose track of the game because there's angry little goblin yelling about all my thoughts and there's an auteur tuning in. And so it's like, that is I think the function of the editor to be like, you need to dial this back. <laughs> but you know, the more you do that on your own, the better job the editor can do of dealing with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Don't leave that all up to your editor. <laughs> no, absolutely. I, I oftentimes like to think of there being like the writer in me and the editor in me, where it's yeah. like I write a thing and then, and I don't let the editor touch it while I'm writing it. And then once it's done, I go into editor mode and I edit it. And that is like, you know, that's a good just, like, narrative voice is the kind of thing where it's like, just make a thing and then let someone else tune in to, like, dial back the self-indulgence. <laughs> Do other people have examples of things that, that stand out to them? There's a, I think it's a fate-based game. I think it's called Atomic Robo. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it has wonderful, it's not so much in the prose, but the, mm -hmm. their little comic uh, interactions mm. of the different characters basically describing what you just read on the page. Yep. Mm -hmm. It's a graphic novel. Absolutely captured my heart. I was mm -hmm. just like, well, I don't know if I'm ever going to play this, but I absolutely have to own this. Because uh, it's just, the, from beginning to end, the whole book just really, really ties it all nicely together. I encountered an RPG recently um, that I believe is for sale at IPR, although I don't think right at Metatopia, but I think generally is for sale at IPR. Uh, that is entirely a comic book. Like, literally all of it is in comic book form. Like there are no there are no there are no paragraphs of text. The rules are explained by like comic book illustrations. It's really cool. I thought it was really interesting. I really I really enjoyed it. Yes. Um, I had uh, so I had actually come across your game and was reminded of it mm -hmm. uh, by um, students at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute uh, mm -hmm. who had told me about it. it. Looks great. Thank you. And one of the things that you had written about was um, Dream Askew and Dream Apart, and that they were partly an inspiration. Mm -hmm. I think the, that game, thinking about going back and originally reading that book and the way that it's laid out, and the way that it feels like it's both Avery Alder, the creator of the game's voice, but then it's very sort of welcoming, and it starts with this whole sort of no dice, no masters, as this original setup for it. And it feels like this invitation to collective storytelling in a way that a lot of other RPGs hadn't before. And it felt very personal, but also inviting of uh, multiple voices at the same mm -hmm. time. That was an example of yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think Avery Alder's work, if you've read Dream Askew, and, and Dream Part, which is also by Benjamin Rosenbaum, but I think he, he takes on a similar voice. She is really good at nailing her own voice in her text, where what is happening is, if you've ever met Avery, she is a very soft-spoken, very welcoming presence. And when you read her text, you can hear her, like, speaking to you. And that's a really good example of, like, the author's own voice being present, because Avery will take a digression to talk about, you know, the politics of a choice, or, like, the philosophy of a choice, or, like, you know, citing, like, you know, like, referencing where she's coming from with that. That I think is a really kind of very strong, like, being able to be something outside of the internal narrative of Dream Askew and Dream Apart, and instead being, whereas like, The Quiet Year is a narrative that is much more inside of itself, right? Although there are, Avery, Avery and I have, we've worked together, and a lot of our disagreements have come from uh, Avery favoring, uh, like, wanting to maximize, uh, like, 
comprehension, like kind of being like, I want this to be as easy as possible to look at and read and absorb. And I'm like, I want it to be compelling too, which sometimes means making whimsical or weird choices that don't necessarily, uh, that don't necessarily maximize legibility. <laughs> um, in a recent game we worked on, uh, it's like a game where at the start of each little mini adventure, there's like maybe a page of prose. And Avery was like, you could replace this prose with like one or two sentences. And I was like, but then you lose the page of prose, my girl. Huh? Uh, yes, there was another hand. Yes. Um, well, I was going to say the computer part, but... Um, <laughs> um, no, 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 I'm glad someone else said it. Um, but I was going to say, there's like a game that I haven't written, but I have the idea of base premise of it was um, like basically looking over at a house for like a friend, a family friend, um, mm -hmm. and the narrator was the person telling the rules with like the mom leaving the note for the person who's watching the house. Mm -hmm. the rules saying like, hey, when you're watching, watch out for these things. Mm -hmm. um, but having those little aside from like, you know, like the kids who are not there. Oh, also like the neighbors, you know, creepy, watch out for it. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I've had an idea in the back of my head for a long time that's been uh, like the field guide to fairies by like some like old professor, and then his kid, like, adding to it and writing like the kid being like these are my friends, and that's character creation is like the kid's little like drawings of their friends, and that's you know so that's that was my and like the kid actually explaining stuff. But yes, I love. I love games that kind of lean very deeply into it. There is a wonderful game on Itch.io that I very strongly recommend called You Are a Wizard uh, by Valentine. Uh, it is a 36 page long PDF made entirely in MS Paint, which features a bunch of little cartoon drawings of wizards. And there are no rules. It is simply a thorough explanation of what it is like to be a wizard. <laughs> and then at the end of it, there's a scavenger hunt where you can go back through and look at the wizards that you just read about and try and match them up with their names. And that, to me, is one of the most compelling games I have ever engaged with because it is entirely its narrative voice as a function of explaining the game. Because I think that when we talk about games, and in a lot of our examples, we are thinking about games as mechanical systems with this narrative accoutrement, right? And oftentimes when talking about older games, like the fake game you mentioned, you're talking about something where it's like, here are the rules, here's a, here's a comic panel at the bottom. And I think to me, I think my estimation is that in the future, the evolution we will see is that you, the, the, the system of mechanics and the, the emotional systems in the world and the vibe that is being referenced to by the text do not have to function as separate entities, right? That over time we can break down those barriers and a game can just be explaining a vibe. A game can be the explanation of a social dynamic, right? Uh, a game could be like, here is how this family relates to each other. You are that family, relate to each other. And there are no rules or mediation for that mechanically, there is just the social mediation of that. And I think that narrative is kind of building, help, allows you to access those less mechanical components of the game building. Yes? I, I actually, uh, a few months ago, I had an idea for a solo work at midnight and then I immediately had to write it. It is, it is a, it's basically a short science fiction story that you inhabit and expand upon and it can only be playful having an MRI. Yeah. It's about time travel. I mean, yes. And... <laughs> I, I think that's very charming. I think that um, when talking about games and narrative voice, I think that what is, I think that you kind of have many choices when talking about, as you said, the audience, right? You have, you're thinking about who you want to be able to engage with this. And the example you gave is kind of on the very extreme end, right? Where there's a very select number of people who at any particular moment will be able to play this RPG. That's not really its, its function, right? You're making a lyric game or something in that zone, which for those of you who are not familiar, lyric games are a, a, a category of RPGs that became very popular in 2019, 2020, were very experimental online. Lyric games are, game, are a movement where the playing of the game is not the predominant point of the game, that 
the engaging with the game as a text and thinking about it and letting it roll around in your head and like exploring it as an object is more important than like which is not to say that you can't play lyric games. I have actually played the MRI I'm sure you have. <laughs> uh, I have played many lyric games, but the the function of writing it down is not because you're expecting to build a play community where it's like, oh man, yeah, you, me and all my buds, we all go get voluntary MRIs every week so we can play this game together. Like, that's not the thing you're building, right? You're not, yeah. you know, you're not like, you know, Adventurers League. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that is that, and the lyric game mode, for me as a creator, exploring lyric games is very critical for understanding RPGs that are meant to be played because the notion of a game where playing is not the primary function lets you focus on the other things that an RPG does that aren't just playing, that aren't just like as instruction manuals. And by exploring those other things, I was able to come back to RPGs where my main goal is for people to play it and think about its, its applications and its, like how those, how those apply, which is part of why I'm very interested in narrative voice and why I was like, I want this panel, <laughs> this space, yes. I'm not jumping in, I just want to, you're done with that thought. No, no, please, please, please. Yeah, I finished Uh, my thought. I just will, yeah. One thing, because we're talking about, like, voices, Mm -hmm. um, and then we can be these guys. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, I hate looking at literature and film, all these things, and emulating, making games emulate them. Mm -hmm. But one thing that I think is super cool, and there's so few examples of it that I can find, are unreliable narrators in... Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Amazing. I absolutely agree with you. And I think that, to me, always the difference is, like, you don't want to emulate, but you can learn from, right? Like, there is this a broad art- set of artistic traditions outside of RPGs, and we can, like, go to them and be like, oh, hey, that's a cool skill. Let me utilize that in my art. And, like, you know, if you're making a superhero game, you're not making a game based on the real superhero stuff. You're making a, a work of superhero art that is in relationship with other superhero art. But I agree with you. And I think that unreliable narrators are such an interesting thing, especially like, I think that there are instances of very unsubtle unreliable narrators. Like there is like paranoia, right? Where it's like, ah, the game's out to get you, right? But like, and there may be instances, like one of my favorite games is Mechanical Oryx, which is a 200 word game by Grant Howitt, where there's an issue in the game with the dice math. This is very, this is very esoteric, but I find it very interesting, and you're all at my mercy, so here we are. Um, when you act, when you act, you roll 2d6, and if you roll doubles, something, like, things go wrong. And when you act, normally you roll 2d6. When you act with hate, you roll 3d6. When you act with love, you roll a d6 and a d4. And the intent, as the game kind of frames it, is that like rolling more dice means you are more likely to succeed, but it, uh, like you know rolling d6 and d4 means you're less likely to succeed, but you're also less likely to roll doubles. The problem is that if you actually sit down and do the math, that's not actually true. You are just as likely to roll doubles on a d6 and a d4 as you are to roll on 2d6. But the emotional framing of the game and the setup of the game makes it seem like those are gonna be different. And I know that this is because this is a 200 RPG, and I love Grant very dearly. Maybe he didn't quite check the math. Maybe you know, like I don't. I think if he had realized this, he maybe would have adjusted how it was how it was structured. But <laughs> there is something deeply upset, like deeply heartbreaking, about a world in which people believe that acting with love will make things be kinder, and it doesn't make a difference. It just makes it harder. And so in that way, the unreliable narrator of the dissonance between the way the mechanic is framed and the, the reality of the probability is one of the most like subtly disquieting and distressing things that I've ever encountered in a game text. And that to me is like, like there's something very, there's a lot of possibility space that I don't think people have explored in the gulf between when mechanics interact with each other, they produce situational reality, right? Like, the 2d6 create a curve, right? Uh, 1d6 is a flat line, right? You kind of, like, the the math creates, like, a d10 minus a d6 creates a number that kind of jumps around but always pushes itself forward ultimately, right? These dice create 
you know, like they create truths of probability, right? They're, they're, they're inevitable mechanical structures. And the text is not under an obligation to be honest about the emotional reality of that. And I feel like that's a really interesting space. I feel like there's a lot of ways to do unreliable narrators in RPGs. And I think the main reason people haven't done it is because it's, it's distressing and also not everyone playing the game will read the book. But I think that there's a lot of potential there. So I'm with you. I don't know if this is exactly unreliable narrator, but uh, I worked on the Dresden Files, mm -hmm. and uh, the marginalia was mm. so much fun. What was the, the deal with the marginalia? So the premise was that um, Billy the Werewolf is a D&D dungeon master, so he's the one who wrote the book, because you know, he's got like the game designer chops. And then the wizard and the magic skull and Billy have marked up the whole book. Mm. And so, like, the magic skull will call bullshit on stuff. <laughs> it's like, well, sorry, it's a game book. Uh, mm -hmm. it, this is how it's going to go. Justin mm -hmm. um, Foss Accelerated did a similar thing where it talked about things that we couldn't discuss because it couldn't go out into the world. Mm. Um, and those were both... They were written with a very, very particular narrative voice, mm -hmm. one of which was more limiting than the other, and it was really cool. I'm glad most of the narr narrative voice ended up in the marginalia, where we could just be completely batshit, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah. It, it, I think most games have mechanics, mm -hmm. and you have to get the mechanics across. And trying to figure out how to give it character without losing clarity, I think, is a challenge. Um, and I think it ultimately comes back to audience. Yes. As you said. To a great extent, yes. Yeah. Because cause clarity is based on who you envision as your... Because like, clarity is about how well can my audience understand what I'm saying, right? And so an understanding of... like if you're trying to write House of Leaves, the RPG, right, which is a kind of extreme example, uh -huh. you understand your audience is the group of people who like House of Leaves, right. which for those of you who haven't read it, is an, is an ergodic text and is actively hostile to being read clearly. Um, <laughs> and so if you know that's your audience, you know you can, that clarity does not matter to you. But if you are writing, I don't know, um, uh, everyone's first RPG, the RPG. <laughs> and you want this game to be played by, uh, only by people who have never played a game before. Then clarity is your number one goal above everything, right? Any narrative voice is complete. Toss that, get that out of the way. You need it to be as, as easy to get in. Like, narrative voice should only be present to make it easy and to make it more clear, right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, the the sort of default narrative voice that mm -hmm. I tend to go towards is an editor. Mm -hmm. um, we address the reader. Uh, it's we, not I. Mm -hmm. um, usually because there's a team behind the book, but also I feels mm -hmm. really pedantic in a way that mm -hmm. we doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, I use contractions because mm -hmm. contractions are easier to read. Uh, and why make it why make the negative not part of the word mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, you could combine those two things i kind of hate it when it doesn't have like mm -hmm. when it, it's got side of that formal could not or whatever mm -hmm. question okay um i like to make it conversational uh break any of the typical rules that we break in conversation. Well, not quite, because mm -hmm. there's a whole lot of thoughts we don't actually finish in conversation, but we're not mm -hmm. David Mamet. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but this is not your chance to show how eloquent you are. This is your chance to communicate and to be friendly and welcoming, and you do that by talking like a person. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's important as sort of a default narrative voice. It's not gonna, it's, there are mm -hmm. lots of different ways that you could do it, but like, 
if you're not if you're not creating a specific narrator, your default should be a very friendly, approachable. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, I think this actually kind of ties with what you're saying because um, I'm thinking like Grant, some of Grant Hallett's games I've played with very different groups of students. So I'm teaching university and I've taught classes where a lot of the students are part of the games program and others where it's like STEM students and engineering students and they're all together. And they'll play the same Grant Hallett game very different ways. Mm -hmm. right? Every group can be really different. So, you know, there's a there's a certain thing, set of things that Grant Howard is determining within, you know, his game, which feels very invitational. It's often very playful depending on the game. Um, but then I could see other games where you are trying to sort of narrow down a tone more narrowly than that. But that's one of the nice mm -hmm. things about games is that it doesn't have to be one of those or the other. Mm -hmm. And it made me think of like um, the card game, card-based RPG um, for the Queen. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, right, which is such a fun game. And again, each group of people can play that entirely differently in a totally different tone. So I guess this is sort of a challenge and invitation to talk through yeah. this idea of like how narrow or determined yeah. I feel like that voice needs to be. Um, or isn't it a breadth of I think I think that 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 building on what you're saying, I think for me, for Possum Creek, every single project ends up with a different narrative voice because having a, a, a positioned narrator is very important to us. So Wander Home, for instance, we have this kind of imagined old mouse or like me if I was a wizened storyteller trying to be like you know like, and there was a, we there was a great focus on editing for uh, rhythm, so it was like, the road is a river that carries us home, right? But da 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 da. It's 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 you know it's like it's playing on iambic pentameter, right? There's a lot of stuff in there that's like, you know, I trust I trust my feet, I trust the road, I trust that someday I will you know lie in a field and know this is the place I'm meant to be, right? Like, so there's a lot of editing for like when you read this out loud, is this effective? You know, is this effective rhythm? Mm -hmm. um, and that was a much bigger concern than like, are we getting information across clearly, right? Like. We, because there's only like two rules in Wander Home. <laughs> and so like, and also like Wander Home, understanding the tone is much more important than, than understanding the mechanics. If you pick up Wander Home and you read it and you misunderstand the rules of the game, but you completely understand the emotional tone of the game, you will have a lot more of a good time than if you get it the other way around, right? So communicating the tone is more important than communicating the rules. With Yazebas, which is a very intricate little bouncy game, the narrator kind of is one part children's books narrator, one part like concierge of the bed and breakfast, who's got this very like, you know, um, listen, it's okay to cheat if you have to, right? Like no one's watching, I'm not a cop, right? It's got this kind of very like conversation, but also like, you know, like once upon a time there was a house, right? This kind of like very, you know, like almost like a Mr. Rogers kind of character. And in that voice, it's like, rule clarity is more important. Even like, rule clarity is more important than it is with Wander Home because there's a lot more rules. And also, that voice is designed to be like a friendly and easy way to learn these rules and is less self indulgent, less kind of caught up in itself than the Wander Home voices. But making those choices vary tremendously from game to game. I have a game in my backpack right now where I've intentionally written it in the style of like a 19th century occult manual, which means that it is excessive in its language and uh, makes very strange choices like the use of the gender neutral he throughout the text that it consistently refers to the reader as he which is alienating on purpose right like as a queer woman I super know that I'm like playing I'm playing with a particular thing there because it is supposed to be alienating and disruptive and also to make you question and challenge the narrator as someone who has like the, the book itself has an outmoded understanding of what is going on potentially, right? The book itself is gonna make claims, like women can't learn magic, and it's like, I don't think that's true. <laughs> you go on later to give explicit examples of women who know magic, you're lying to me, right? That kind of thing. So it's like a game, like the, setting the narrator up to get undermined, right? And that is about broadness or narrowness, right? That's, that's a very, very narrow narrative voice. I cannot use that narrative voice in any other RPG. In fact, like, many RPGs it would be disastrous for, right? If I wrote Wander Home with that voice, the game would fall up, it would be horrible. <laughs> but
But that narrative voice is really useful for that specific game. There, there's something I, I really like in some works that uh, I think is sort of adjacent to that, uh, that like, like uh, in-world artifacts that are like written by like characters that aren't even present as NPCs necessarily, mm -hmm. uh, but like fill out the world. I got, I got paid once to make one of these and it was the best thing I've ever been paid to do. Uh, it was essentially to write a, uh, to write an in-world scene um, and lay it out that um, was from the point of view of a like cryptic UFO conspiracist, and I had free reign to write whatever I want except for like one little with a little story that was injected in there with like important game plot information, and it was so much. <laughs> so before I made tabletop games, I wrote LARPs. That was my background for about a decade before I touched tabletop RPGs. Um, I'd been doing it since I was like 13 or 14. Um, and I was always very fascinated by the notion of immersion in LARPs because immersion in a LARP context is about transforming the world around you to align, to, to physically transform the world around you and the sensations of the world around you to align with the game space. This is not what immersion means in, RP in tabletop RPGs. When tabletop RPGs say immersion, they are referring to a different emotional experience than those being talked about in immersion with LARPs. For me, the most immersive tabletop RPG is Ten Candles. Not because it creates, it makes you feel like you're being like hunted in the woods or like the sun is dead or whatever, but because the tactile experience of the candles on the table slowly going out mirrors the emotional experience that is happening inside of you, right? So a game, the tactile elements of the game abstractly relate to the emotional reality of what you're doing. And I think in that way, what you're talking about is there is a great deal of alignment between what you're describing in a LARP context and what the equivalent would be in a tabletop context, right? Because in a LARP context, there's a great, there's a desire to make a thing that is a tactile, a tactile representation. Whereas in a tabletop RPG, you're making a tactile mirror, you're making something evocative. Yeah. Yes. Yes, there is. And what I'm, what I'm talking, that's why I'm talking about like immersion as a, as a, as a goal in LARPs, as opposed to immersion as a like. Most LARPs are not high immersion LARPs, right? Con LARPs are not high immersion LARPs. You know, the, the, the scale of that is in the same way that like some tabletop RPGs are very narrative light, some are very narrative heavy. Many tabletop RPGs are not seeking narrative as a play experience, but it is a thing that is. You know, narrative in a tabletop RPG context is very different than narrative in like a video game context, right? And that kind of is the, the important through line there. So, kind of along with this, mm -hmm. you're talking a lot about narrative voice in books, in sort of like the, you know, like the, the big teaching materials that mm -hmm. you read through. Um, but talking about like, oh, okay, we're going to have the, the emergency of the, the experience at the table. Um, I was wondering if you had any thoughts about narrative voice in play materials, in like the stuff that you're actually sitting with at the table and how that's getting that, yeah. that narrative voice across. I think that that varies tremendously. As always, that varies tremendously. There are going to be some games like where the character sheet is like, it is like, it is important the character sheet gives you the numbers in as clear of a way as possible, right? Sometimes that is just true. There are games where it's like, like Dungeons and Dragons, right? Where it's like, you need to be able to look at that and quickly know your numbers and not have to deal with things too much. There are other games where you can have a black box on the table and a, a, a plastic hand reaching up and you can have your you know invisible sun thing or what have you. And I think that the the trick to me comes back to the notion of emotional, the, the emotional evocativeness, right? That you don't need to make a thing, you don't need to make a character sheet where you're like, wow, that is the in-world object that would be literally present. I oftentimes like to think about it as, like my kind of shortcut is if I imagine the characters were playing this RPG, right? Like if we're playing, if my, if my Blades in the Dark crew sat down to play Blades in the Dark, how would they make their optimal character sheet, right? 
And that kind of question is oftentimes how I come back to it. Is like, if this was, not that this is a literal transition, but like, if I've got an object that I want to make feel like it is part of this world, how would those characters relate to it, right? And that kind of blurs from narrative voice into layout philosophy, and that a lot of like, narrative voice is to me an element of laying out the book, but that's kind of my thoughts on that. Do you have any closing thoughts? Anything that I, you know? Um, I think a couple of places where you may not, okay. If you yes. do like a strong narrative voice throughout, sometimes it can actually be more confusing. Mm -hmm. But you can do really strong narrative voice in your examples and get a whole lot of emotional engagement in that and set the tone for your, your game and all of that stuff by demonstrating how your fictional players engage with it and so on. Um, and that's a place where you can really lay it on because you know, you've got people conversing and, and all of that kind of stuff. And so a lot of the rules that lead to clarity are bent in the examples. And examples will help almost every reader on some level. Um, another thing is that sometimes you want your stuff that really needs to be clear to be in lists. And so that can be an exception to your narrative voice. So, you know, if it's like, okay, you need to be able to see this at a glance. There it is in a list. And then, you know, you've got this more narrative voice around it. Um, so your choices don't have to be, you know, one or the other. There are lots of ways to intersperse these things um, and to choose where you want to be really colorful and where you want to be more like, no, really here. I feel like you'd get a people. you'd get a kick out of the fact that for Wander Home we hired a poet to help edit the lists that we edited the lists for that we we specifically like someone whose like job was to edit the lists uh -huh. to make sure that like they had like a setup and they kind of read well they like flowed as like themselves little narrative objects mm -hmm. which I feel like you just mm -hmm. get a kick out of but yeah um, mm -hmm. and uh, kind of going along with that they don't all have to be poetry but you you want people. We don't read one word at a time. Mm -hmm. Yes. We read groups. And so you want to make sure that you are writing, that your narrative voice, whatever it is, is saying things in groups that people can grasp. Uh, and if you have too many little words, which is part of why I hate that sort of like formal whatever, you, the, the important things can get lost yeah. in all of that. Yeah. Um, so poetry is a good way of thinking about it to some extent. Yeah. And I think. Those are wonderful thoughts. Thank you so much. Um, thank you all so much for coming to this. Thank you for, you know, listening to us talk and thinking about narrative voice. Um, I hope that this can be a useful tool for designers and that if nothing else, you can come away from this thinking about, at the very least, maybe your what is an RPG section can be a little bit less daunting. Uh, <laughs> thank you all so much. Thank you. I'm so sorry.